Welcome to Growing Home, the podcast that looks at the practices and products to help you take care of the place that means the most to you, your home. I'm your host, Terry Therian, alongside your co-host, Len Giddix. Len, how are you this morning? I'm doing fine. It's a great day to be alive, Terry. It is, isn't it? In this episode, we'll be digging into the best practices for successfully overseeding and seeding your lawn this fall. Lawn care is one of the most rewarding challenges around the home. Since the 1600s, lawns have served as a means of defense so that incoming intruders could be seen, recreational courts for sports such as lawn bowling, and even the daily toilet for our dogs. And all the while providing a magnificent green aesthetic. Well, as green as we can make it. Lawns can be tough, though. When you think about it, we're trying to grow millions and millions of uniform plants over thousands of square feet, fully vulnerable to the elements. So we took our challenge to the experts. We have with us today Steve Ratcliffe, a UConn Associate Extension Professor of Turfgrass Science and also a Certified Golf Course Superintendent. Steve, how are you today? Great. How are you, Terry? Very good, very good. Well, thank you for joining us. And before we get going, if you can share with us a bit about your background and your position at UConn. Sure. Um, well, first of all, just thanks for uh, inviting me to speak today with you, and, and it's great to be here with you and Len. Um, my background started when I was uh, a young kid. Uh, I mowed lawns around in the neighborhood and uh, took that into when I was in high school, started working on a local golf course and spent many years doing that and realized that you know this was a pretty good job to be in. It was great working in the environment, great being outside. So I took, uh, from there I went into uh, my education. I went to the, uh, a two-year program, got an associate's degree in turf grass management, and then continued on to get my bachelor's and master's degree in plant and soil sciences. So once I graduated there, I became a golf course superintendent at the Willimantic Country Club in Willimantic, Connecticut, which is now the Wyndham Club, uh, and was fortunate enough to start adjunct teaching uh, back in the late 90s. And... Um, that's where I am today. Now I'm a full-time faculty member at UConn since 2000. You know, as we get into the episode, we're always told to overseed in the fall. Um, and that would be, you know, spreading grass seed over our existing lawns. You know, can you share with us why overseeding is important? Is fall the best time to overseed? Sure. I think overseeding is really an important practice that homeowners should use and commercial people should use. Uh, overseeding does a number of things. One is, is it really introduces new varieties, new species, new hybrids or cultivars, we call them, uh, into your lawn that might have better drought tolerance, better insect resistance, uh, uh, better disease tolerance. And it's, it's important to keep introducing these new cultivars or hybrids into, into, the, into your lawns. Uh, they require a lot less inputs and are much more environmentally friendly. Um, overseeding in the fall is definitely the time to overseed. Um, you don't have the competition from weeds uh, that you might have in other times of the year. Uh, your, your root zone can get really established, get pretty thick. The turf can get dense. You don't have to worry so much about uh, drought going go into the, the, the uh, following summer, whereas if you seed late in the, in the spring, in the, you're always going to have to worry about getting a good root zone established at that point. So Fall overseeding is really a good time to do that. And plus, days get a little shorter, and you always have, mo- you have a more moisture, too. So if you don't have irrigation, you might get better germination at that point. Is fall also uh, a good time to seed a lawn, a new lawn? Fall would be the best time to seed. Um, it, so, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a good question because oftentimes people might buy a new home or try to establish a new lawn. Yes, if, you, if, if you're going into the winter with a new yard and you don't have a lawn, you really want to try to get it established in the springtime. Uh, but if you have your, uh, your preference would always be the fall. If, and actually, the, the best time to seed, I, I advocate seeding late summer into August, early September, because what happens there is the soil temperatures are still warm and you get a, a much better germination much quicker. Uh, so you, again, increase that density and root depth going into the winter. And do you think of overseeding as like an annual practice? I would, I would think if, for a homeowner, if their lawn is very dense and they're happy with it, I think I would definitely incorporate some overseeding 
maybe every couple of years. But if they have bare areas or it's an older, older established lawn, the varieties today are so much better that I would, I would try to overseed to get a new, a new stand and establishment in. Great. And so, you know, if we can now look at, you know, how do we prepare for overseeding? Because, you know, right now we're in mid-August getting ready for this peak season of seeding. Uh, what should we do to prepare, you know, let's say an existing lawn? That's a great question. Um, and it's hard to ask, answer a question with questions, but really what the homeowner has to do is take a good look at what their lawn is. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges I see with people trying to establish lawns in the fall, usually it's the lawn has failed and it's, it's, it's extremely uh, dense crabgrass. And trying to get grass into a, a thick, dense mat of crabgrass is very difficult. Now, crabgrass is going to die with the first major frost, but also that's getting late into the years of be seeding. So I think, um, you know, one of the things I, I might try to do when I'm, I'm seeding is some of the things I would do is if, if you don't have that dense crabgrass, maybe get it get an aerator overseed slice in some new seed that way if you have an area that's bare just kind of rake it up pull out some of the um the uh weaker grasses and you can overseed into that and then i would always try to in, in many cases if there's no lawn cover at all i would definitely try to mulch it a little bit great um and then is it when you're when you're looking to prepare the lawn is should we mow like really short and then because like now we're going to be putting down new seed, it's going to be germinating while the existing lawn is going to grow up around it. Should we, uh, you know, mow it real tight, and then that way it's not blocking the seed from getting any sunlight or choking it out or anything? If you can mow it lower to get good sunlight for the new seed to get it established, um, fertilize it. I usually like to go with a half rate of a starter fertilizer. Um, you know, at the time of seeding, and then I would come back about three to four weeks later with another half rate. Um, because once one of the, one of the things we always see is new seeding usually doesn't have the root depth to to, to absorb nitrogen or, or nutrients. So I try to split out that starter application over a time um, and see what see what I think that works much better in establishing the grasses. Um, you know, the question with with mowing the grass. Low again. There's a lot of different things. If somebody had a small area and they were to completely uh, use a non-selective herbicide, for instance, on that product on that area to get new grasses in there or to get weeds out, you probably would want to come in after seven to ten days and scalp it down as low as you can and overseed into that. Okay. Um, and that would be a whole new establishment. So it's difficult to ask your question because there's an overseeding and there's a partial renovation process there's a full renovation there's a full new establishment so each one would be handled a little bit differently so really just looking at the condition of your current lawn uh, how it's made it through the summer and then determining from there how, how big of a project you take on in the fall exactly okay exactly so what i'm reading there is if i have a thick layer of thatch for example i would want to remove that thatch so i can get to the seed to the soil surface as much as possible exactly len when, when and that's that goes into a whole nother area and again it's it's, it's really the first thing in a, in a lawn establishment would be is to really look at what you have and then take care of the problems before you start an establishment because if you have a failed lawn or lawn that's failed it's failed for a reason and if you see it again without correcting that the reason for that failure you can have a problem so thatch can be a real real problem especially with overseeding um you know, a good half inch of thatch is probably desirable. You get up to an inch or more, uh, you have problems, and you have to get rent thatching units to pull the thatch out. But the idea what you want to do is to get good seed to soil contact. You really need to get that seed down into the soil. And with a heavy layer of thatch, that can be difficult at times. You might even you might get rooting in the thatch, but it's going to dry out and die right away. Now, uh, as far as aeration is concerned, there are a couple of different machines out there, a slicer, a, a, I don't know, a hole, po- hole poker, whatever right, you right, want to call it. Right. Is there a, a better machine, a better way to aerate uh, an area of soil, of a lawn? Well, my preference would be that if I have an aeration problem or compaction pro- problem, I would go with an aerator that actually pulls a core out of the soil. Uh-huh. So it would be a core aerator. Um, you can also get solid tines, they call them, that will punch holes in the soil. And then you have the slicers. I think the slicers would be a good way to get seed, the soil contact, 
certain times of the year, but a compaction problem would be a core aerator. Now, what I often recommend to people if they've got a an area that's manageable and they rent a core aerator and they want to overseed, go over it more than once. Go over it five, six. Seven, go off it. If they have a machine for the day, just keep going over it because the more openings you can get to get that seed established uh, into the soil, the better off you're going to be. Um, you know, and when I was in the industry, we used to not only um, core aerate, we would slice the seed. We would slice seed in and then core aerate and then broadcast seed to get a, as much seed to soil contact to get a rapid change over to the newer varieties. With aerating and dethatching, is there any concern that you're harming the existing turf? There, there wouldn't be. I, I can tell you that if you get a dethatching unit, it's going to look pretty ugly. For a while, you're going to get a lot of thatch. You're going to need a lot of wheelbarrows to get that thatch off the property because you don't want to leave it on the lawn. Um, so it it could be ugly. It could be a problem. It, would you create a problem in the turf? No, if you time it right. If you do it in July, you're going to create a problem that it's that's not a good time to do it. So dethatching and aeration. Again, if I have my preference, it's always in the fall. Okay, um, it's really important to to do that in the fall especially if a homeowner is using pre-emergence. You know, many things and that I would, I would emphasize in our discussion here is I see this, this happen very often where someone will put a pre-emergent down for crabgrass and go and seed their lawn two or three weeks later with grass seed, and then they, they don't know why the grass seed doesn't come up. Well, the, those products don't know, uh, you know, good grass from a bad grass or grass that's desirable and not desirable so you really have to consider that so i think fall is the best time to overseed aerate and dethatch because it's going to heal a lot quicker too before the season gets going great and, and even continuing that discussion on you know what's not working in the lawn and causing the failure um you know for un, for weeds or undesirable vegetation um is there a way you've you've used in the past or you recommend addressing those weeds or, or what weeds can we address before we overseed yeah one of the things is i i'm my my belief is we i mean your chemicals should always be as a last resort and there's products out there now that are less harmful or biological that look like they've got some promise coming down the line but the best way to keep weeds out of the lawn is to create a good healthy dense turf and what you can do there how you can achieve that is, is by using the right varieties and grass seed species in the right locations, um, using the newer ones that might be less drought tolerant, maintaining your turf higher than, you know, it doesn't have to be a golf course or athletic field. It could be maintained at three inches. You know, it doesn't have to be low, and that will all help keep weeds out. And then as a last resort, I, I like to uh, tell people if their weed problem's really bothering them and it's a small one, then to spot treat weeds with a with a chemical they don't need to go blanket the whole yard but if the yard is just loaded then that i would start there and then you can go with a spot treatment after that in the future years but the, you you, can, you just have to manage it I, I think one of the things i i and i speak with a lot of homeowners is i just say really have to look at your yard you just can't do something and leave it you know irrigation don't turn it on in the beginning of the year and then come back at the end of the year and have it run the whole time we've all seen sprinklers running in in the middle of the summer in the mm-hmm. middle of rainstorms and that's the worst time when we get into heat and humidity. So you just have to watch your lawn. It's, it's, it's a living organism, so you just have to take care of it. Great. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a huge living organism. You know, I spoke in the beginning. It's millions of plants over thousands of square feet, and it's its own ecosystem. Yep. Um, so, you know, kind of what I take from that is, you know, look at the weed problems you have, and then, you know, hopefully if you're, if you're just addressing them for the first time, you know, you, you can go out and you, that'll be, should be your largest application of treatment for any sort of chemical or herbicide. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you scale down to less and less and, and just using supportive practices for, for the turf grasses that you desire. Right. And I, I think it's important to add to that, that proper seed timing in, in fall, if you can do it, will help eliminate weeds. If you try seeding in the springtime and you have a thin stand and you see this all the time is that all of a sudden once crabgrass starts germinating now that crabgrass is going to take hold and outcompete the turf through the summer so again not only healthy turf but proper seed timing is important i'm not saying not to seed in the springtime i'm saying that you might have issues where you have to but my preference would be the fall um, i think that's really a good time to, to look at 
Great. So then, you know, as we're as we're back into our preparation and and looking, you know, we've got you know the, the grass mowed down, dethatched, and, and physically amended. Are there things we should supplement the you know the grass with, or you, you or you did mention you know putting a half rate of the starter fertilizer and then coming back and putting a second application later? Um, anything else we should do to prepare the soil? Yes, you know, again, Terry, one of the things that I I I try to emphasize with with homeowners and, and industry is if you have a problem, you have to figure what the problems cause. If you have weak turf, you have to figure what's caused it. And I think the first thing you want to do is look at a soil test. It's pretty easy to take a soil test. You can go out and go with turf. You only want to go down about four to five inches. That's where the that's where the roots will be. I get a soil test, send it to a soil lab. We have one here at UConn. Um, and and you can get an idea of what your fertility is, what your soil pH is. If your soil pH is low, then you want to add limestone. If it's low in calcium and magnesium, then you want to add dolomitic limestone because dolomitic limestone has both calcium and magnesium in it. So I think it's really important to know that. And I know that uh, our soil and guard, our soil uh, lab here will give you recommendations too that can be filed to for fertilization. But if you have a really low pH, then all of a sudden you find that your turf may not perform well. Um, turf usually does well in t- pHs of six, six to seven. Um, some, some of the fescues, you know, five point five to six point five is is pretty good. I, I but I always emphasize too that if it goes to five point four or five point three, the turf isn't going to die. What happens is a lot of times if the pH, uh, you know, if we get too high or too low, we some of the nutrients in the soil get tied up and they're not available for the plant. Right. So by having a a more neutral pH or you know a, a pH more conducive to that plant, the, the pH being like the power of hydrogen, it, that hydrogen's causing like basically the nutrients, whether from fertilizer or naturally occurring in the soil, to be bound up. They, not, they can be, so okay. like phosphorus. Or if it's too low, you can get excess of aluminum and so forth, too. So we, very rarely do we have pHs that low in, in Connecticut, but you can get them. You know, I, I know that um, even in my own yard, I had some septic work done, and uh, I did a soil test beforehand, and the pH was that they, the soil they brought in was unbelievably low, and we put a lot of limestone down there before we got a really good establishment. Right. And then is that... is you know, pH, a common issue you see or something we should definitely test before doing anything? I, I would test. If you have a failure in the lawn, I would test my home lawn maybe every three years. Um, because one thing is when you apply limestone, it's not going to be act, react, active immediately on the, on the soil pH. It takes time because it is a stone. The finer the, the limestone, the, the quicker you'll get a, a change. But just having a handle on it, I, you know, for, for, Six to eight dollars, you can. It's a pretty good tool to see what you might need. You know, as far as what your lawn might need, and and if you have different areas around your yard that are maintained differently, or one might be wetter, or different situations, then sample those separately. Those those soils. One thing you want to do is just take multiple samples around the property and mix them. And so what you'll do is you come in if there's thatch in in turf, you cut the thatch and the and the soil and the the grass off the top just put the soil in there about three to four inches deep you can do it with a garden trowel but go around uh the whole yard and maybe get eight nine samples and put them in a baggie mix them up send them off to the lab and if you have a problem in the yard test that one separately great and um if we do you know realize we have like a really crummy soil and you know it's basically killing either a portion of lawn or or the, the, the lawn in its entirety um is it is it something we should do of like introducing new topsoil or compost in those areas and and layer that over the lawn first? Um, that's a really uh, diff- that's difficult to answer without knowing what the situation. I mean, if the lawn is really bad uh, and the soil is soil is extremely bad, you might have to come in and amend it. You know whether you amend it with something for better water holding capacity or amend it for something for better drainage. Uh, it's it's really that's a difficult one to answer. We could come in and say, yeah, ideally, if we need a good good root zone mix, we can get you know six inches of topsoil on a on an existing property. That's great, but you want to always remove the existing turf. You don't want to put it over the existing turf. You get much better establishment if you get rid of the plant material. Right. So if we're if we're if we're not doing a you know a complete excavation, mm-hmm. really just putting a layer of soil is not ideal over the existing turf. Then no. 
No. I would not do that. I would remove the existing. It, it would be easy, but I would definitely remove the existing turf because you're going to impede root growth and so forth. And if you've got a problem there, you've got now you've got a layer in there that you know the roots have to penetrate. You'd get much better establishment if you're putting seed on soil that's free to free to root, have root movement. Gotcha. So it's kind of like in water movement. You know, if okay. you get thatch in there and all of a sudden now you got water held up there, now you got your roots in a, you know, one inch, one inch soil, you know, it's because it can't drain and you can run the problems too. So, yeah, I might like to say to be to just go put it over the top, but I would definitely move it. Okay. So it's like or, putting, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I said, or I would just aggressively aerate it and dethatch it and overseed it um, and go that way. And you can lightly put soil out over an area, but just don't bury it. So you can't. So really, you know, a lot. A, sounds like a large part of the time we can just amend our current soil and get that composition back to an ideal environment for the right. grass to grow. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, you know, I have to be honest. I know there's those situations where the soil is really bad in a homeowner situation, and it's to, got to be totally changed if you're near the shore and you're on straight sand. I mean, that would be a great growing environment once you got turf going. I mean, drainage is the best thing for growing grass, but I think. What I would be looking at in situations like that is my species selection or my cultivar selection because many of the grasses we have will do okay in different growing environments, different soil pHs, different fertility requirements. So that's the way I would be looking at. So, Steve, uh, what about rolling? I mean, uh, it used to be pretty common to roll, it seems to me when I was a youngster, to roll the lawn. Why, I don't know, but I've right. done it. Right. Is that old-fashioned out of, or does it need to be done? Uh, I, you know, I don't think it's old-fashioned. You don't see it as much because I remember as a kid seeing everybody rolling their lawn, and um, we still do it. We still recommend that if you're doing a new seeding, especially on a, a new establishment without any topsoil, without any growth on there, uh, not an overseeding situation, but uh, soil, a new, a new establishment, I, I would roll it because the better seed-to-soil contact you can get, the, the better the germination is going to be. That seed is going to have a tra- chance. It's going to it's going to not be hung up where it can dry out. It's going to not wash away. It's not going to migrate. So rolling is still something that if you're doing a new establishment, I definitely would do that. And I would also mulch on top of that too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I spent my entire Saturday morning dethatching, aerating, mowing low. And then I go to the local store mm-hmm. and I'm confronted by this concophony of grass seed mixtures and blends what's the best seed to choose for connecticut uh or is there a better seed depending on whether shade sun right that, wet, that, dry no that that that's a great question and that's a that's an area that i think there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of your success is going to be on your overseeding on what you choose for your seed and it goes back to the first comments that i had or a few minutes ago with regarding is assessing the situation, assessing what, what your growing conditions are. You know, as a homeowner, what you really need to do is say, all right, first of all, what kind of lawn do I want? Do I want a lawn that's low input or do I want a lawn that looks like um, Augusta National or, you know, uh, a tennis court or, you know, a grass tennis court or an athletic field? Or do I want to have a low input lawn that looks nice that I don't need to do as much watering and irrigation. So that's one. And I'll come back to the species in those, those areas in a minute. The other situation is, is what's my growing environment? Do I have irrigation? Do I want to water? Uh, do I have shade? Am I all sun? Um, you know, do we have, uh, am I fertilizing a lot? Am I not fertilizing a lot? So for all those situations, there's a grass seed that I would, I would pick. And I, I, I can go through those a little bit. The other thing is you just mentioned a blend or a mix, and I think it's it's important for people to understand that a mixture of, of grass seed would have two or more species in it. So a mixture might have fescue, ryegrass, and bluegrass, where a blend is going to have two or more hybrids or cultivars in it. So there'll be, if you're doing ryegrass, you'll have three different hybrids of ryegrass. It's important that you have blends or mixes because you can get survival of the fittest. So if I have a ryegrass, bluegrass, uh, fescue, and I'm putting it out on a lawn and I've got one area in shade, my fine fescue, if it's a fine fescue, will do much better than the Kentucky bluegrass. So that will be the dominant grass species in there. Or if I have a disease that occurs over the year, um, 
that's a, my ryegrass might be susceptible, I have a bluegrass in there. So you, you don't want a mono stand of one type of grass or hybrid or cultivar. So that's really important. So the, the grasses for each area would be that I would choose is if I'm if I'm a homeowner and I don't want to put a lot of input into the yard, but I want a pretty good grass and I'm shady and dry, I might look at the fine leaf fescues. That's creeping red fescue, the chewing fescues. Or if I want something that's a little bit greener, a little broader leaf, I might look at the turf type tall fescues, which are really have developed a lot over the last since I've been in the industry. Uh, the the developments in turf type tall fescue and, and ryegrass have been phenomenal. They're really good grasses out there now. Where the old days it was more like forage, and they were clumping and they were light yellow. Now they look they look pretty good. Um, if I want that really manicured look and I have an irrigation system and I'm fertilizing, I just want it to really look like Augusta or, you know, an athletic field, then I would go with the Kentucky bluegrass and ryegrass as the dominant species in my lawn, more Kentucky bluegrass and ryegrass. It's interesting. I'm working on a project up at, at our research farm now with, um, with the National Turfgrass Evaluation Program. We assess fine leaf fescue we have a trial we have a, a turf type tall fescue we have a kentucky bluegrass and a ryegrass trials up there and we and these are over 100 entries in each one of these trials with the exception of the fine fescue of hybrids the new latest and greatest many aren't even commercially available yet but i'm looking at things like drought tolerance uh, weed encroachment color texture but in our fine leaf um, tra- trial we're actually looking at trafficking golf simulated golf cart traffic at a half inch mowing height on fine fescues usually in this area we don't grow in fine fescues at a half inch we usually grow them at two inches or inch inch or inch and a half two inches but the reason we're looking at them in golf course turf is well if we can maintain them at a half inch we've only got one pound of nitrogen for the year they've only been irrigated two or three times a year if we can maintain golf course turf with a half inch mowing height and not put in as much water, not much fertility, um, you know, that's that's good for the environment. So those are the types of things we're looking at. But the one thing I was going to mention is if the success of those grasses, I'm, I think, is going to be based on not watering them as much. If you overwater them, I think they'll fade out. And we see with the wet, the wet, this summer's a lot wetter than the last summer. I'm seeing a lot of encroachment of the bent grasses and some of the other weeds now, and it's starting to fade out. So it's, it's taking its toll on it. So water... I'm not saying not to water it, but you really have to know manage what you're doing, and that goes back to shutting your irrigation off or having a rain-out switch on your irrigation if you have automated Just don't put the timer on and let her go. That's right. Just go out and look at the soil, take your trial. It looks wet or looks dry. I need water. Okay, so I've picked the right seed for my situation. How do I apply it? What's the best way to apply that seed for overseeding a lawn? Well, great. That's a good question. There's a number of ways you can do that. Um... If you're going to slice in seed, you can rent slicer seeders that you actually put seed in a hopper and you slice it into the into the lawn, and that will get seed to soil contact, providing your thatch isn't real thick. Um, another way, if you aerate it in many directions with a core aerator, then I might use a broadcast seeder. Um, and then if one thing, the the drop spreader's more time; it goes where you want it. But the one thing that where I find that's really beneficial to the homeowner is if you have a lot of gardens, you really got to be careful with the broadcast spreader because once you start spreading it and you get it into your flower gardens, you'll be weeding good old desirable grasses that you don't want there. So I like the the drop spreader if you have a lot of gardens in a small lawn. If I have a big lawn, I would prefer the, the rotary spreader. Um, as I mentioned to you before, we used to slice in seed and aerate in the industry, and I always would... Um, aerate first and then I would slice after if we did it the other way the slices would get pulled up with the aerator so it's kind of an interesting thing that we learned the hard way but it's a trick that we we learned the hard way because we had pieces of turf flying all over because we went opposite so I always would try to um, uh, aerate first and then slice if you're going to do both now good seed is expensive um, and uh, I've always been told to buy the best seed I can afford for the right situation how do I know how much seed to put on? Is there a, a source to find out what the setting is on my spreader? Sure. If the seed company doesn't have a, a spreader setting on it, usually you can go to any textbook or find on the web seeding rates. 
usually your seeding rates are dictated by the size of your seed. So for instance, your ryegrasses and your turf type tall fescues, I would recommend a seeding rate of, it sounds high, but eight to 10 pounds per thousand square feet. Okay. If you're your 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 bluegrasses are a lot smaller seeds, so you're probably going to be around two to four pounds per thousand square feet, and then your fescues would be somewhere in that range too, maybe four to six pounds. But you can find those resources on on the web or the or the or the seed company. But those are those are rough ideas. It's it's one of those things where um, I might use if I want to get a quick establishment. I might use a little bit higher rate, but I don't want to go excessive. A lot. Some research has shown that when you overseed by too much, you get a quick dense turf, but your rooting isn't going to. Be, eventually, it catches up within a year or two. So you, you know you can save your money, but important that you get it at a, a good reputable company and a good reputable seed. All right, I've got my seed down, mm-hmm. and now uh, I'm waiting and dreaming for that new lawn to establish itself. That germination period, uh, what should I do or not do, and for how long? Should I irrigate? Can I walk on it? Can I let the dog walk on it? You know, what should I consider there? Yeah, those, those are great questions. What I try to do, and I'll try to I'm gonna answer more than that too, Len, as I go through here, Um once the grass is up, so you want your lawn at two inches, you would probably start, you would start mowing it at about three inches, okay? You want to take about a, let it go about a third more than you want it before you cut, and that's how you should be mowing anyways. So this is the established lawn. <laughs> that's the, that's once you've seeded the lawn and established. When you seed it, um, I would try to stay off it as much as possible, especially if the soil is, is wet. Now, can you walk across it to move a sprinkler? That Sure you can, but you don't want to get any rutting in there and in there. And the dogs, I would try to keep off as much as possible because they're going to run around. They're going to they're going to move seed and migrate, especially when it starts getting that little root on there. You don't want to disturb that that little root. You want to give it a chance. Um, again, I mentioned to you, I might fertilize a little bit uh, at the beginning and then maybe three weeks later to push it a little bit. It's really important when you, we can go back to our t- timing too. Um, our Kentucky bluegrass seed really slow to germinate. That's that's one of the big drawbacks with Kentucky bluegrass. It, it needs, it requires more water to keep it out of dormancy. I'm gonna go back and forth here a little bit. Once it's established, but it's a great grass because it can go dormant and pop right back. Where the turf type tall fescue takes a long time to go dormant, but takes a really long time to heal up. So once it does go brown, it takes longer to heal up. Where the Kentucky bluegrass will be immediate, but the seeding rate on the or seeding timing on Kentucky bluegrass, I I would be really hesitant to go much past the end of September, early October, because if you start getting really cold weather, there's cold, cold, cold temperatures, you're you're it's not going to germinate. We need a good 55 to 65 degree temp, soil temperature to germinate. Um, Kentucky bluegrass will take 14 days to germinate. Our rye grasses can germinate in five days, five to seven days. Um, our fescues would be anywhere between seven to ten days. <clears throat> so you start getting into those situations. And the other thing is when you start mixing seed, you know, your rye grass, you could say you're going to good establishment, but if there's seed in that mixture, that's what you're probably seeing coming up right away. The Kentucky bluegrass, really, you know, people will say, geez, you know, it's the second week in October. Can I seed when I, with Kentucky bluegrass? And I might say, you can try it, but I can't predict what the 1st of November is going to be like. Uh, one of the things you don't want to do is get into the season with grass just starting out and then get in, have it freeze. Then it's it's going to die. So is it is it more so a concern of the ground freezing or like is frost a threat when you're seeding, when you're um, seeding in the fall for germination? Um, that's a great question, Terry. It's the soil temperatures at that point are probably going to, uh, you're probably not going to get much germination. <clears throat> you might with the ryegrass um, if the soil temperatures warm back up. But one of the things that, again, I'll kind of go back in the spring seeding a little bit here because your question makes me think think about this, is um, you, can, you can dormant seed. You can seed in November or January. It's just going to sit there until the soil temperatures warm up. So if it, if the if the soil um, doesn't thaw and the grass start growing, it doesn't um, 
you won't have you won't have a problem. You'll have a problem with it uh, germinating. One of the things we often do is I like to tell people to try to frost crack seed. So if you come out in February when the the, the ground starts thawing, you get these fissures in the ground. If you go out and put seed down at that time period, when the soil temperatures warm up, you will get grass on all those fissures. It's pretty slick. That's better seed seed to soil contact you can get. Gotcha. When the temperature gets up right. there for germination. Right. And you said it was about 55 degrees or higher? I'd say 55 to 65 degrees would be really, really good. We might get a little bit either side of it, but optimum. And, and the thing is, when you go late August, your soil temperatures are way up there, and they're gonna, you'll germinate a lot quicker. So Kentucky bluegrass might germinate, instead of 14 days, might germinate in 12 or 10 days. Gotcha. So, you know, it all, all depends on soil temperatures. And kind of um, back a little bit too, when when we have um, newly germinated seed and we've overseeded and we have an existing lawn too, and we, we mowed it down real tight, but then, you know, three weeks on, especially this summer when we have so much rain, my lawn's grown like crazy, um, you know, we're looking for that new germination to get to the three inches before we mow. So that might even put us in a predicament where our existing lawn is, you know, six inches and getting kind of out there should we just let it go and wait really wait it out no you know that you know that's a great question and i don't i don't i think when i was speaking before i was thinking new establishment if i'm seeding into an existing lawn that's got a fairly decent stand i'm gonna i'm gonna keep mowing as regular as long as i don't migrate that seed because that that existing turf is also going to protect that young turf that's in there so yeah, I don't want to. I wouldn't wait for six inches because that's going to even out. You know, you need sunlight for that new seed too. And and when we talked about mowing the turf low, I'm thinking you want to. You've got a really bad situation where you want to come in there to get it started, mow it low. I wouldn't scalp it so you kill all the existing turf that's there. I want to just be clear clear on that. I'm I'm not advocating coming in scalping that lawn down at a time of seeding to nothing. Um, I would just keep it a little bit on the lower side. So if you're maintaining your lawn at two inches, don't go in and mow it at an inch to exceed it. Gotcha. So keep it down around on the low side, two inches, yeah. and then we apply our seed. Right. And then you would mow as regular, or, you know, give it, you know, an extra week or so in between mowings? I would mow as regular if, if again, it's tough to answer without seeing the situation. If you have existing turf and it's just thin... I would mow as regular. If you've got bare areas in there, I would mow around the bare areas until they establish. Now, uh, I want to irrigate the seed unless it rains, I would imagine. Or do I need to do that? And how much water do I put on? Uh, And how do I know how much water I'm putting on? Boy, these are all great questions. Um, (laughs) What I try to, um, what I do when I do a new establishment I turn the irrigation on. Fortunately, we're fortunate to have automated irrigation, but I might have that come on three times a day, but really one or two spins of the sprinkler. So what I'm trying to do is just keep the surface moist while the seed's establishing. Any more than that is is a waste of water because there's no roots yet, and you run the risk of migrating the seed. So I'm trying to keep that soil surface somewhat moist until it germinates, and then I readjust my irrigation accordingly. I might give it a little bit longer, but less. Once it's up there, I'm going to go back. I'm just going to keep watching the site, though, for for dry turf or dry soil. The beauty of seeding in late August, early September is oftentimes you have a lot of soil moisture in the morning. So I think light frequent in the beginning is really important, okay? Um that being said, you have to be careful because if you're doing light frequent in August, you don't want to get damping off, which is a disease that can destroy your whole stand. So you really have to be conscious of what the weather is. If it's very humid out, you can really want to cut back on that regime. But if it's uh, I call a high dry sky where there's not a lot of humidity and it's windy and sunny, you're probably going to want to irrigate three to four times a day with just a couple spins of the sprinkler or a quick syringe off with a hose we actually get a lot of questions of, you know, putting down new seed, you know, how do I water? And, and often it, it's, it's kind of taken as a, you know, a, you know, this is the application for that grass needs, whether seed or existing, but you've really broken it down into two areas. You have, we're first going to irrigate for germination 
to get those seeds to sprout. They need a moist environment, as you're talking about. But then once we do have roots coming out of those seeds, it's now we're, we're focused on root development, and you you kind of split those into two and, and have two different irrigation strategies. Yes, once you once your seed germinates, two things have happened. Once now you have roots that are a little deeper, and the other is is you you don't you don't run the risk of seed migration with irrigation because it's it's established. Now in very new germination, you still run that risk. So I would st- I would still watch that instead of going three times a day, I might go two times a day. But I would not put any water down after say four o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon because we don't. We don't want to go into the evening with high humidity because then you really run the risk of some diseases. You do want it to dry down a little. The important thing in the beginning is make sure the soil is moist, not 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 so, not soaked. And uh, we also have a, a lot of customers with really large lawns who can't irrigate, even you know where the hose and sprinklers can't get to every part of the lawn. So is should the you know consistent morning dews we get late August, early September? be sufficient for germination and then hopefully we get more rain in september than we did in august is that natural irrigation sufficient enough for overseeding well you have to i think assess the problem what you have um i go out every every year or so when i oversee my my backyard okay i have some some issues back there with trees and so forth i don't have irrigation I do get established. I do have turf to establish. Am I going to have some seed mortality? I might have some seed mortality, but when you have when you have an existing thin turf, you still have the ability to hold moisture in that canopy from that that turf. And you know, I, I realize that water is going to be an issue. But if you if you need if you want to get new turf established, you need to apply it. And you know, I don't know how to say you're probably going to have some seed loss, but I've had pretty good luck. Again, going at the end of end of uh, August and early September. Now, my situation may be different. If I'm doing a totally new establishment without any uh, grass in the or any canopy, I, I would use a mulch. And that's another thing homeowners can do. They can mulch areas if they're doing areas around there. Once they seed it, put a light mulch down there, keep the moisture and temperature seed temperatures up. If you go late in the season, a mulch will help keep those temperatures up. So mulching could be very beneficial in those situations. So if you don't have water, that would be a great way to do it. And if you have a large lawn, I mean, I would assume that you would get areas that are sparse that you would probably oversee, and you can mulch those areas alone. When you say mulch, of course you're not talking about the landscaping mulch. Is it a chopped straw, a compost that you're recommending? Or? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Some people will use a, a light composting after they they um, put seed down. It would be very light. Um you can buy products that have um, it's basically paper fiber mm-hmm. that once you irrigate them they'll break down. Sometimes they have fertilizer incorporated in them, starter fertilizer that can aid in it. Um, you want to, and then of course a weed-free straw or hay, and, and that's that's um, something we always we always recommend with people because if you spend all this money on putting a nice lawn and, and all the seed, and then you get a, a, a hay off of a farm that's got the old common. Th- you know, tall fescue in there and orchard grass in there, then you're going to have that in your new lawn. You're going to get seed that you didn't pay for in there. (laughs) (laughs) This has been very enlightening to me because I have a well, and so I always time my overseeding, and I do it every other year or so, so that if I have three or four days of consistent rain, I would want to put my seed down before that. And I think what I'm gleaning from what you said is that's probably not the way to go because the seed's going to be washed away somewhere. Well, if 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 it's in again it, it, with the situations vary. If it's in an existing turf that's that's somewhat established but thin, I would take advantage of the rain. I don't think it's going to migrate very far. If it's in a in a newly established area, again, it's all soil, no, then then I would. That's what I'm talking about with the irrigation running off. But if I'm doing an if I'm doing an overseeding in my yard, I take advantage of the rain if it's going to come. I don't think it's going to migrate if it's in slices. Or aeration holes, it's not gonna it's not gonna migrate. So it's two different things we're talking about here, Len. So I, I'm sorry for the confusion on that, but I think um, if I'm irrigating a, a bare soil, I'm gonna do it lightly, and I don't want to do it before a deluge. Well, I just didn't want my frugality to get in the way of success. That's all. <laughs> 
Okay, so uh, now uh, the seed is up. I've mowed it a couple times in the fall. The October winds are blowing, snow comes in. Should I do anything different to my overseeded lawn the next spring uh, that I wouldn't normally do? Because it's young, I, I would I would fertilize it. I want to keep pushing a little standard bit. Standard lawn fertilizer. Standard lawn fertilizer. At that point, once it's established, I would I would I would fertilize it. Um, fertilizers that I like to utilize in whenever I uh, fertilize are usually going to be have a good amount of slow release product in them. Um, I want that I want that fertilizer. They're more money. They're more expensive, but I think you get more bang for your buck because you sometimes can eliminate another application later, but you get sustained feeding throughout the year. So I would I would suggest coming out into springtime, maybe fertilizing it, and then maybe in May, just before the summer sets in, go out again with a slow-release fertilizer or an organic fertilizer, which would be slow-release at that time of year because of the soil temperatures need to break that down. Um, so I would I would fertilize at that point. What you would really have to assess, and I know there's some people that don't want to use chemicals and some people that are fine with them, is... I think one of the things that I see, two things I see that really destroy lawns and create problems are uh, grubs and crabgrass. Oftentimes when I see lawns that I go out, I work with the commercial industry a lot. I see this in cemeteries a lot. I can see areas that I know when I, I see the crabgrass, I know it was caused by grub damage because once the grubs kill the grass, now we have voids, and, and all weeds need our void to get established. So when the grubs kill that lawn, um, the crabgrass has a place to get, get sunlight, get germination, and will take over. So you can almost see perfect patches of crabgrass, and, and I'm almost sure 90% of the time it's the, the precursor to that is going to be grub, white grubs. So as a homeowner, I think if, you, if you're putting this money and effort into it, you might want to look at something to control your grubs. Um, and there are products that are preventative and there are products that are curative. And then you also want to decide whether you're going to use uh, something for crabgrass. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's, uh, those are two things I would look. If I want to uh, ensure success in my overseeding project, I'd be looking at those two areas. Yeah, I think that actually brings up another really interesting part is you often mention, you know, going in and assessing first before we, you know, apply a treatment or, or figure out what we have to do. But you, you know, you, you talk in terms of a cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So the first you see the end result, which is crabgrass. Mm-hmm. But what if you go up cycle, you look at it. Well, there's actually a grub problem. So until we get rid of that grub problem, we're going to keep getting crabgrass no matter how much we treat the crabgrass. Right. And even, you know, we go through different seasons. It's a seasonal cycle. There, it's always looking at a cycle, assessing where you are in the cycle. And also, um, you know, how can we address just the issues we have at hand or, or really getting to the, the core issue that's out there, fixing that and then invest to get a lot of it corrected, but then get to a point where we're at maintenance. And then if little things start to happen, you know, through our consistent assessment, then we can go in treat those smaller areas. And, and like you had mentioned before, even with the weeds, you know, you get to a point where you're spot treating instead of mass application and one environmentally friendly, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and then two, you know, we're saving some on our pocket as well. Mm-hmm. Any other key things we should be looking out for or advice when maintaining our lawns or best practices that you always, you know, kind of share? Yeah, I think I think one of the biggest mismanagement practices that I see by the homeowner is going to be water. I think a lot of people who irrigate think it's going to be a cure-all and give them a green lawn. And um, I think when I speak around the state, that's one thing I always try to encourage people is to really learn to watch the water cycle, the weather, watch what if they have an in-ground irrigation system, know what it's doing, not just turn it on the beginning of the year and shut it off because one of the biggest problems I see is just we get a lot of turf diseases when we irrigate a lot. And I don't irrigate my own lawn, and right now I'm experiencing all kinds of turf diseases because we've had about 12 inches of rain in the last five weeks and with high humidity. So the tendency for people in high in August and when it's 90 degrees out is, is to turn up their irrigation system or water, but if the, high, the humidity is really high, you're not losing a lot of water in the atmosphere. If you get into July 4th and it's not humid and it's really uh, irrigating or, ir- or really... Um, 
dry, then you want to turn on your irrigation system a little more. You know, our grasses really don't use more than in a real high dry situation in a week where we've got, you know, winds and high temperatures. They use about an inch and a half of water a week. And some people don't even know how much their irrigation system's putting out. And they can measure that with a tuna fish can, you know, and say, hey, this is, we're getting an inch of water here over um, one hour's time. Then we know that we've got a water in a real high dry situation. We're going to irrigate an hour and a half over a week and divide it by four. And that's how many, if you're dividing four days a week, then that's how much your timer should be on. But still check your soil moisture. Just go with a trowel. Awesome. I love the tuna fish can. So it's just a simple way to measure how many inches of water we're getting over a period yep. of time and, and kind of just keep that as a monitoring gauge. Yeah, and if you if you have a system, you can put those in multiple about every 12 feet if you want to save your tuna fish cans or your yogurt cans or whatever and just see, take a ruler and see what you're putting out. And it's, you can it's always interesting. use a cat food can. Cat food can, can, can. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about this, uh, Steve, this, this whole discussion has been wonderful and very enlightening. But, Terry, you know, we discovered that the grass doesn't have to be greener on the other side of the fence. It can be green on our side of the fence. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, Steve, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and uh, all your experience. Um, So if if our listeners have any further questions, how can they get in touch with the extension or or where can they go for more advice? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, inviting me to speak with you today. I really enjoyed it. Um, we have a website here in our home and garden center. It's a ladybug.yukon.edu, um, and they they work with homeowners all around the state. Um, they they answer uh, questions with regarding your gardens, with regarding lawns, and so forth. So we can do that. And you can always um, look at our website um, uh, www.turf.yukon.edu, and that's our website for our turf program and of course our our plant science and landscape architecture website. And the College of Agriculture and Health and Natural Resources website are all areas you can look to find different information, whether it's animals, nutrition, uh, you can find that through the extension. Yukon Extension is a great resource, underused, they would have to say. Yep. You have so much information to share. All we have to do is ask. You, that's right. And the people that work in it are, are fantastic, and um, they love to help out, and uh, they're very interested in, in the, the health of the, the public in Connecticut. So. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So for a recap of the points today, uh, visit the blog section of our website at mackeysinc.com. That's M-A-C-K-E-Y-S-I-N-C.com. Thank you to my co-host, Len Giddix, our producer, Brian McKenna. And thank you all for listening. And remember, where that is and what you love, that's home. Mackeys, where the home grows.